Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I represented clearly everything that the old guard in rugby league did not want. There were a lot of people who just didn't want women in the game. What matters most? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Every journo dreams of winning a Walkley one day, but today's guest has gone one better. Currently chair of the Walkley Foundation, she's making a name for herself in boardrooms Australia-wide. Well, it is indeed my pleasure to welcome Marina Go to Short Black. G'day, Marina. Thank you for having me, Sandra. I'm so happy to be here. Well, my pleasure. I'm so curious about the path you've chosen and the way you've charted your course. You're a journo, once a journo, arguably always a journo, but you move seemingly effortlessly into the boardroom space and you've done it with aplomb. You're the chair of a major rugby league club, as well as now, you know, the Walkley Foundation, the Ovarian Cancer, Super Netball, the list goes on. How did you do it? Well, I plan, Sandra, so I'm one of those crazy people that um, I'm always thinking about the next step. And interestingly, or maybe not, maybe it's really dull for most people, but I, you know, I started my life as a, uh, or my career as a journalist, and I always wanted to be a magazine editor, which I was able to do at a relatively young age. And 23. At 23, that's right. And so once I became a magazine editor, you know, I started to work more closely with management, I guess the people that run the business. And I started to think, well, maybe I could do that. I kind of like the idea that I would have more of a, I guess, more of a say over the direction of the entire entity rather than just, you know, what was between the pages and what was on the cover. And so I took myself off and did an MBA. And that was when I was in my mid thirties and I'm, you know, 54 now. But did you do that to run the magazine better? Or was that the beginning of where you started to branch out and say, what else is out there for me? It was when I had been appointed to the role of publisher. So in the world of magazines, I'd been a magazine editor of various magazines. So, you know, Dolly Magazine, I was managing editor of Cosmo, I was the editor-in-chief of Elle Australia, and I had launched Australian Good Taste Magazine, which is a food magazine. And then I was promoted to women's group publisher at Pacific Magazines, and I thought, Thank you. You know, thank you to the managing director for providing me with the opportunity of having the confidence in me. But I'm the sort of person that really likes to make sure I have the skills. And so I thought, uh, I know in this role, I, I need to know more about how budgets are put together than I really know. I mean, I knew how to put together an editorial budget. I knew how to talk to our advertising team about numbers. But I really, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to be responsible for the business, I think I needed a broader skill set. So I took myself off and I did it part-time. It took me seven years to do this postgraduate degree, but I was really determined. And when I graduated, I... I, st- I started, I guess, having different conversations with people because you meet different people. You meet people outside of the media sector and you start to make friends with people in management positions that have, you know, law degrees and accounting degrees and that sort of thing. So they started talking to me about boards and I hadn't ever really considered boards. And so I decided to do the Australian Institute of Company Directors course 
because I thought maybe this is something that I'd like to do when, you know, when I'm a lot older. And me being me and, a, and being a mad planner, I decided that I would start gaining experience while I was working as an executive. So I took, you know, not-for-profit boards and sports boards, which is like you do, Sandra, because I know you're on a number of boards like that as well. So I built experience along the way. And then I reached a point in my career four years ago where I thought, you know what, I think this is the last executive role that I want in media. And at the time I was running the Hearst titles for Hearst in America, so the Australian business as part of Bauer. Hearst was in a joint venture with Bauer. So I, my next goal was to actually see if I could develop a board career. And so I, you know, the last, I guess, three months of being at Bauer, I started to tell recruiters and chairman that I knew that, that that's what I wanted to do. And fortunately, yeah, after a couple of months, I was approached and offered an opportunity to join a company board that was about to go through an ASX listing. It was a wonderful opportunity for me. And that kickstarted my career. I've been doing this now for almost four years, and I just love every day of it. For those from the outside looking in, the perception is, you know, you arrived with a bang, but what you're really telling us is this has been a deliberate path you've chosen and worked for the better part of four years in the board space. For 20 years, though, when you look back at when you started your MBA. Yes, that's right. Exactly. You know, I've worked really hard to get to this point. And a lot of people do say that to me and they just, they'd say, oh, you know, this has happened for you overnight. It's extraordinary how quickly you've been able to build a good board portfolio because I acknowledge that, you know, for a lot of people, it takes longer. But then I have to remind them that I did 10 years of gaining experience in the not-for-profit space, so 10 years of providing my expertise and, and also gaining critical knowledge and experience and not being paid for it. So I definitely did my time, but I did it in a way that kind of worked for me, which was alongside my executive career. And a lot of people step out and they have to they have to gain that experience before they can actually gain a paid board and it's and it becomes a bit of a gap. That's where I think planning really matters if you want to do this. The real gap in corporate Australia, they say for women, is in the C-suite space, let alone the board space. Did you find as a woman it was any harder for you to get those breaks or do you think it was really opportunity and experience that presented the best chance for you? Oh, no, it was, it was tough. Um, there were many, many times in my career where I can say, and this is trying to be as objective as possible, uh, a man with less experience was given an opportunity over me. But what I did, and I think this is probably, maybe this is just me being stubborn <laughs> or determined, but if that happened to me, then I didn't, I didn't hang around. I just thought, you know, if this organisation doesn't value what I have to offer, then I'm going to go where somebody does. And so I would go and find an organisation that was prepared to give me a promotion. I was fortunate in my career that I, I met and worked with three really fantastic men who mentored me and I guess were my champions within organisations and certainly within the industry. And so a number of my promotions were because they believed in me at a time when it was really difficult for women to, to be promoted above what men thought they were capable of. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't everywhere. And, and it wasn't necessarily sexist behaviour. It was just that... Conditioning, unconscious bias. Yeah, I think it was unconscious bias in a lot of instances. I mean, of course, there are examples along the way. Everybody experiences them where you know that there are sexist people around you. But within, within the industry, I mean, I still feel that, you know, I was determined enough and I really focused on getting the outcomes and the roles that I wanted. And I just had to think differently about how, I, how my career would look. And so, as I said, I had to then move around a bit in order to move up. And I don't regret any of that. I think it actually has made me a more resilient leader and probably has set me up 
more so for the board space than if I'd had a wonderfully linear transition and it had been easy for me to achieve a senior position. Do you think there was something in you that board directors saw where it wasn't gender specific. What do you think you brought to the table? Well, uh, a couple of the directors, or sorry, a couple of the chairmen actually have said to me straight out what it is. And so, and that's courage. I have been appointed to a number of my boards because the chairman has looked across the table at me and said, you're a person of courage and we need people who have the courage to say what isn't popular, to go against everybody else around the board table if it's the wrong thing, if you truly believe that what we're saying isn't right. Because you know, groupthink is the worst case scenario for a board. And and I'm not suggesting that there's widespread groupthink, but clearly you need to have the courage to have independent thought. And that seems to be the quality that um, the chairman that certainly chair my current boards see in me. And I'm really pleased about that. And some of that comes from the fact that they believe that I wouldn't have lasted a second in the rough and tumble world of rugby league, for example, as the chair, let alone five years, if I didn't have courage. And also the media world. I mean, there's an acceptance from anyone who doesn't work in media that the media sector is one of the toughest sectors. And if you can get to a place where you have longevity, then it's really valued actually by the corporate sector that that actually you must have a, uh, a toughness, I guess, to you or resilience. And that is necessary in the boardroom. Look, I have to agree, Marina. The media does give you a toughness, a resilience. You, you can't be a wallflower and survive in this game. And I guess that's the same about the business world. So in many respects, uh, you're armed and, and had a, a tough exterior to navigate the madness. But what possessed you to want to be involved in rugby league, one of the most misogynist industries <laughs> and leadership roles there is? Well, there's a couple of things. So first of all, I really like the impact that sport has on the community. And I had previously been the independent director on the Netball Australia board. So I got to see firsthand the impact that sport can have on the community. And so, you know, that kind of made me think I want to continue with sport. And then after I had done six years of governance of a, of the leading women's sport, I then thought, well, actually, I think I could probably add some value to a sport that needs diversity and particularly gender diversity. And as luck would have it, the NRL came looking <laughs> and they actually approached me. It was at the time when Dave Smith had just become the CEO and he'd come from a corporate background. And of course, he walked into the NRL and apparently looked around and said, well, where are all the women? And there were certainly no female chairs at the time. And so he quickly set about trying to work out how he could encourage women from the business world to join rugby league and, and of course, encourage Rebecca Frizzell, who ended up being the chair of the Titans, and myself to join, and I became the chair of the West Tigers. They were the two main things. And then once I got in, I realized that I could actually make a difference because my viewpoint was very different to a lot of the guys around the table but particularly the, the men who had been entrenched in the game for a very long time. So bringing a fresh perspective is something that every director should do. And I felt that the women who were joining boards of rugby league clubs at the time were bringing a much needed fresh perspective to the sport. Well, you certainly did that. For the first time in the club's history, you raised $43 million for the Centre of Excellence and turned a profit. And yet, gosh, a lot of slings and arrows. You were you know, headlines in column inches dominated a lot of newspapers and you're an easy target. You said uh, as you were winding up your time there, you did feel disrespected. What were some of the early hurdles and I guess the more amusing stories that you're happy to share now about your time as the chair of a rugby league club? 
Um, oh gosh, there's so, <laughs> there are so many, honestly, Sandra. People keep telling me I should write a book. I I guess the interesting, well, probably it's important to note that it, there was no lack of respect from within my own club. So my club embraced me. Uh, the players were increase, incredibly respectful and the men around the board table also were very respectful. So there was no issue from within my own club. Was there a hesitancy though? Was there a reservation? Did you have to sort of prove yourself? Well, no. Interestingly, I was one of two female directors, uh, two independent directors that were appointed together. At the time, it was part of a new governance structure for the West Tigers and the NRL had, because they'd given the West Tigers a loan because the, you know, the club had, had financial issues previously, the NRL basically said, look, we'll give you this loan but we want you have to have a woman on the board and you need a, you need a chair. They didn't say it had to be a female but the chair had to be independent, an independent director. So at the time I joined with another female independent director and a a male independent director. And at the very first board meeting, the board chose me to be the chair. So I went straight in as the chair, which was a bit of a shock to me because I didn't have my hand up, trust me. (laughs) But the four... There were four male directors who had come from the football clubs and they it was a unanimous decision. So I didn't feel that I had to prove myself at all. So within the club, it was fantastic. Within the sport, however, different story. There were clubs who at the time were using the media and I guess it's, you know, you can see it right up until today that um, the media becomes a tool by which agendas are played out. And I didn't realise at the time that, uh, I actually think that the agenda, it wasn't necessarily a personal agenda against me, but I represented clearly everything that the old guard in rugby league did not want to have rolled out across the game. There were a lot of people who just didn't want women in the game. You know, what would we know? We've never played the game, you know. But I was an independent director, and I think the independence was probably even worse for a lot of the old guard than the fact that I was a woman. I happened to be both, so it was, you know, <laughs> it was almost uh, like the perfect storm. The perfect storm for them because they couldn't ignore your voice. I mean, they had to have you at the table. Being a chair, as a board director in many respects, I don't think the club would have been anywhere as successful as it was because you couldn't be ignored, even though games went on where they tried to set up meetings, I believe, without you even being present. Yes, yes, it happened a number of times. And, um, and I, you know, in the end, I just laughed at them and just said, you know, I don't know how you expect to get things done because a lot of the decision-making had to be 17 out of 18 chairs had to agree and they would often leave Rebecca Frizzell and I out. And so we would just laugh and say either they can't add up or they're, they're wasting their time. They don't, they don't know how to get things done. So there was a little bit of, oh, God, these people are just Which ridiculous. is laughable in yeah. hindsight, but how ridiculous. And yet women are the ones that get accused of pettiness and you think these are experienced directors and managers who are game playing over gender. Yeah, exactly. It actually happened. Yeah, no, it actually happened. And it happened more than was ever written about in the media because, you know, I didn't play it out through the media. So unless somebody else played it out through the media, then you didn't hear about it. And, you know, I guess one of the things that often happened to me, which is very, very funny in hindsight, but at the time was very frustrating was that we had, you know, we had an email group, so we would communicate via email a lot and meet up as a chairman's group probably about four times a year. And in between, you know, we we had a bit of a agreement that, you know, it was our job to help grow the game. It wasn't just left to the NRL head office. We had to support the whole game and help them grow, not try and bring the game down because, you know, the whole world was laughing at us because we were destroying our own game. So there were occasions where chairmen would do things that we'd agreed that we wouldn't do and they would do it very publicly or do really dumb things. And so I remember sending an email 
once to the group and said, you know, this is our, this is ridiculous. I can't believe that we can't basically grow up and behave like professional people and deal with our sport professionally. If we don't like something, then we, you know, we go straight to them. We don't bomb them through the media. And so my email was leaked to the media, you know, so those sorts of things would happen. Whereas other, there were other people who were also saying things like that, but they were men. And so their emails were not leaked to the media. And I should say at this point too that it wasn't all me. There were a couple though. There were a couple that lined you up yes. because you were a woman and you didn't fall into line. Well, worse than that because I spoke back, right? So it wasn't just that I didn't fall into line because they were used to people not falling into line but they'd be told off and then those people would stay quiet. But I wasn't quiet and I would fight them back and they hated that because they were not used to people fighting them back, man or woman. So a lot of the guys, I mean, there's some tough guys, you know, around the board table of clubs but they are very quiet when it comes to certain people in the in the game making the decisions on their behalf. And I would say I couldn't possibly allow another club to tell my club what to do if it wasn't in the best interest of my club and the game. You know, I mean, how ludicrous, but that happens in rugby league. And so, yeah, if you're a woman who fights back, then you're target practice. And <laughs> so I became target practice. How difficult was it at the time? Because it was relentless. And I think a lot of people don't know that your husband at the time was a senior sports journalist at a major city newspaper, and he would have been sharing an office with people that were lining you up and taking pot shots every other day. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is where I think having a media background actually helped me because a lot of people in the game and tougher men than me, let me tell you, would ring me and say, I don't know how you can do this. And, you know, I'd be crumbling. And I would say, I don't know. I think it's because I've been on the other side of this. And no, of course, I hadn't written horrible things about people unnecessarily, but I've been a journalist. I've had to report on hard stuff. And so I understand how it works. I understand the game. And so for me, it wasn't as damaging to me personally, but it was hard on my family. It was particularly hard on my husband. My sons, though, for me, the line in the sand would have been if it had have been devastating for them, then I would have walked away. You know a lot about rugby league. You've been a fan of rugby league for years and years, and it's your family's beloved club, West Tigers. Let's combine that with corporate governance experience and business experience. What makes you any less perfect for the role than, than another mate of a mate who ends up in the same position? Well, that's right. And, you know, the game, there was a real push to professionalise this sport. It's actually the biggest sport for men in the country. It brings in a lot of revenue. It was very clear that in order for the game to grow, the game needed to grow up. And I think, you know, you've probably heard that many times and it's true. And so, you know, bringing in people that have business experience or other experience, other experience other than just having kind of come through the various leadership roles of rugby league to bring a new perspective because, you know, everybody, every business says this, every business knows that what got you here isn't going to get you there. You need diversity of opinion and approach. Exactly. And everyone seemed to accept that other than some club chairman within rugby league. When I look at your career, you've also moved into so many other areas in the corporate governance space. You're a non-executive director of Energy Australia, Auto Sports Group, 7-Eleven, ProPAC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For those who don't understand how boards work, how would you define good corporate governance? It's a phrase that's thrown around a lot. And unless you've ever been on a board or ever been responsible for the outcome of a business, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No, no, it doesn't. Well, boards have a couple of roles. A really important role is to set the strategy for the organisation. So working with the CEO and the leadership team on 
the best place and the best way to win within a sector is. And so, you know, you look at all of the challenges that might be ahead and the opportunities and work out the risks and then you kind of set a course. And then within that course, there'll be, and within your sector, there'll be a set of rules that you have to work to. Some of them are regulated. Energy Australia, for example, we have, I think it's about 57 regulators, which is extraordinary. Well, we actually have to comply with the rules. And so the board's role is to ensure that we're checking in with management to ensure that we are complying. And then overlaid with that, one of the things that you have to make sure that you're doing, which is why the strategy is so important, is you have to grow the organization for the shareholder. So 7-Eleven is a family-owned company. So we take that into account with thinking about shareholders' growth needs. I also sit on some listed boards where you have a lot of shareholders. Same deal, our, our job is to ensure that we are growing the organization because that's the reason that shareholders invest. And then the other role that the board has is to hire and fire the CEO. So we, we're not operational. We don't run the business. We don't make day-to-day decisions, but we steer the course for the organization. And I really love that because that's, you know, it's actually one of the things that attracted me to boards when I was in senior positions in companies and, you know, when I, I was the CEO of private media. What I really love was looking ahead and having the time to think about where the sector's going and where the organization could go and win. And that is all the time for us. You know, we, we get to look ahead while the CEO and his team are working on now. It's a risky business, though, predicting the future, isn't it? It is. Oh, yeah, it is because there are no certainties. So what you have to try and do is work out where it is okay to take a risk and where it isn't okay to take a risk. And so that's the challenge that boards have because if you take the right wrong level of risk, then you can either stunt growth or you can create a problem. And, you know, boards are there to ensure that risks are mitigated, but opportunities are taken. So, yeah, it's tricky, but, you know, I love it. And that's the reason why everyone around the board table too has to bring a different perspective and has very specific skill sets to the needs of that particular organisation. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Professor and the Hack. Accessible politics with just a touch of depth. I'm Hugh Rimmington. And I'm Peter Van Onselen. You can find us, The Professor and the Hack, wherever you find quality podcasts. Given the current media landscape, are you glad to be out of magazines? Oh, look, I think it's really sad, actually. I mean, magazines magazines are the entire reason that I became a journalist because I just loved them so much as a teenager. Can you predict their future? Well, it feels like there isn't going to be a very strong future. There'll be pockets, I think, where having beautiful images printed on paper will matter. So there's always been a view that home magazines and kind of more bookie style, high quality magazines will outlast the weeklies, I guess. It'll be interesting to see if that's the case. But the problem comes back to ad revenue now, because for those sorts of magazines, the problem is that ad revenue is moving into different areas now. And a lot of it goes online. 
that's the problem with the viability for magazine publishing. So I feel I feel that as the quality of digital products and apps has increased and continues to increase. I mean, Instagram has certainly taken a bit of the shine off magazines in recent years. Then I think more and more money will probably come out of magazines and um, they'll become low cost operators. And I think the challenge is that people forget that in, in their heyday, there was real expertise behind those magazines. But the people who have been running those companies in recent years have taken cost-cutting decisions that don't appreciate the value of experience and think that you can bring in some kid with very little experience, they cost a third of the price, they're banging out more articles and feeling that that's the same thing. Well, well, it isn't. And so not surprisingly, the brands are not as strong anymore. And there is a reason for that. So look, I think that magazines probably would have been in decline to some degree anyway. But I actually think that the people who've been running those businesses in this country have actually accelerated the decline. I just think that they've been poorly run. I want to talk about women in general in the Australian culture. Do you think we're getting a fair go? Oh, look, I think it depends. It depends where you look, really. I mean, you know, in some regards. It sounds like a no. Well, I, look, until there are, the opportunities are 50-50 everywhere and that gender doesn't matter and we don't have to talk about it, then I think it's pretty clear that we're probably not getting as fair a go as we should get. But, you know, have there been gains? Yes, there have been gains. And I think that that's wonderful. I always think it's about, it's, it's almost a question in two halves because people of my generation and older are still looking and saying, it's still not enough, there's still not enough. We feel that there is still glass ceilings sitting on our head. There are still ways that we have to behave that are different to the way the, the guys have to behave in order to get the same outcome. And we know that that's true. You know, we know that that's true. And look, in, in any where we're even with board seats, if if you actually have to say, oh, you know, we need to make sure that two of two of those people are women, then you know that you're not really still getting a fair go. Whereas young, you know, the younger generation, a lot of them don't don't know what we're on about. So and it's because they haven't hit their heads yet on the ceiling. And so that's what I always say. I remember starting out too and thinking, wow, this is really fantastic. Look at all the opportunities. And then hitting my head when I wanted to go for promotion and I was up against a guy. And the first time you lose out to a man that you know in your heart doesn't have as much experience or doesn't have... Shouldn't get the job. Yeah. Then you know that you know that things aren't fair and that still happens. So as long as that's still happening, then there are still issues for us to challenge. The good fight is still to be had. So do you think the phrase having it all is real or a dream? I guess it depends on what your expectation is. I had a career and I also had a family. And so I guess in many you know, many people's definition, that would be, you know, having it all. But that meant that I was, I think I, I hardly slept, you know. <laughs> I look back at old videos and photos and I think I was about six stone or something, you know. I mean, I, I hardly slept because I was working to keep my career going. And I don't know, look, is, it, is the definition of having it all pretending to um, not not to have children, you know, when you do have children. And I think that still happens in some areas. And this is why actually in the times of COVID, it's been difficult for a lot of mothers because they're working at home, they've got kids, and they're trying to pretend on Zoom calls that they're professional and it's all falling apart for them. I guess my mindset was something's got to give. I just have to try and get through all of this when my children were little. I've just got to try and find a way through. I'm not going to be the perfect mum. I did actually have to try and be the perfect employee though, because, you know, back in those days, anything less wouldn't have been tolerated. But 
you just can't be the perfect everything all the time. And so I believe in this, in the idea that you can have it all, but not all at the same time. Something has to drop at some point and you just got to work out in your life what that is and be okay with it. Not every woman aspires to be a CEO and, and that's okay. If you are feeling that you're doing a really good job at something that you enjoy, you don't feel the need to, to be moving up the corporate ladder, then that's okay too. And I think that we, we need to ensure that we don't put pressure on women to feel like they're not achieving. It's a personal decision. Marina, you recently launched an online magazine called Tonic, which is aimed at women over 45. And you're doing it with a bunch of former colleagues from your Dolly days. So what was the thinking behind it? And how did it come about? So it came about because we got together as a group and we had been talking a lot about the particular challenges of our life stage because we're all women between late 40s and um, about 60, I think the oldest member of our group is. And we just thought, wouldn't it be great if we had something for our life stage that was like what we produced for the Dolly audience? And, you know, because this is what we all do, we just decided to give it a go. So we threw time at it during a period when we had extra time and then put at our little website and not expecting it to go completely gangbusters, which it has. But we were just thinking, would it be nice if somebody wanted to read what we had to say? You said it's been gangbusters, but what sort of topics are people responding to? What are the issues for older women right now? Oh, uh, the health, you know, health has gone crazy. People are very interested in everything from, I mean, we've covered menopause, of course, and we've also covered heart disease. We've noticed that we actually have a tonic doctor, which is the equivalent of what we had back then as Dolly Doctor. And given that our audience we've discovered is actually the Dolly audience that um, were with us 30 years ago. Wow, that's loyalty, isn't it? That's loyalty, yeah. And, and I think that that's their entry into tonic. But thankfully, when they have arrived, they have looked around and said, well, wow, this is actually content that is for me. And one of the nicest letters that I received, Sandra, actually on day one was from a woman who said, oh, wow, it's like you all sat at a dining table with me and my girlfriends and were part of our conversation. That for us was just so heartwarming because it means that we're on the right track. We are women of the same age and, you know, same life stage. And we, you know, we're all talking about the same things, the same cares. But also the stories, the personal stories about women's lives are really resonating. So there's a real need for authentic, real-life stories that are not exaggerated. Women's magazines have done real-life stories for a very long time, but a lot of them in the mass market women's magazines have been really kind of exaggerated fringe stories that are more titillating. Our audience wants stories that they can actually relate to, you know, women like them that are not exaggerated or titillating necessarily, but actually just this is what life is like and this is what I've had to deal with and this is how I dealt with it. But, yeah, it's been really encouraging so far, we have to say. Now, look, if you enter into any business, you can do it for love and no money, but ultimately it needs to be sustainable and that means attracting advertisers. What sorts of advertisers have you attracted? I mean, I, I'm hoping we're not hearing the cliché older women's menopausal advice kits and relationship tips. Well, what we have decided, no, well, not yet anyway, none of, none of the older women stuff yet. Um, <laughs> although um, we, we actually have been approached by a number of advertisers who are looking to target older women with their health issues. And so and we probably were not surprised by that. But we actually have a plan that for us is about taking the first six months to build the audience. And we can do that by bootstrapping what we're currently doing. 
But the plan is actually to begin monetizing the site in about six months. And so we have had advertisers approach us which was really nice. And they'd read about us or they had seen Tonic on social media and they wanted to know a little bit more. So we've certainly been getting a lot of briefs, but we're not, we're not in a position yet where we are ready to take that because we don't want to just run straight banner advertising. We actually want to make sure that we work with the right advertisers on content that will actually work for both our audience and for them. So we're going to try and take a slightly different approach. We're also looking at a membership model, which will kick in Again, once we, you know, once we're comfortable with where our audience is sitting, we're taking a slow approach to it, but we've definitely got a plan. Well, you're an experienced journalist, an experienced editor, and increasingly an experienced businesswoman, clearly in the board arena. But walk us through those early stages, because 10 years ago, you didn't launch a business on social media, but these days you do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the I think that's the wonderful opportunity. You know, the barriers to entry are, are low now. You can just really for the price of hosting, as long as you can create content, you don't even have to create your own your own design. Although happily for us, we have the wonderful Lou Fay, who was uh, one of our art directors back in the day, and so she's designing the site. But you don't even need that. Anybody can launch something like this, and we're mindful of that because it means that at any point somebody else could do exactly what we're doing, which is why I think having the the Dolly connection will probably be our initial differentiator because we you know, held the hands of these women when they were teenagers, and so that gives us a relationship that um, is probably certainly gives us an advantage over other groups of people who may want to create content for the same women. But yeah, look, it's really easy. You just, we're doing it in blog format and um, we're creating video and we're learning as we go because we all started in an era of print. We're print journalists, we're print stylists, we're print designers. I mean, I have launched a few websites through my career because I actually did run some digital businesses. But for most of the team, they're really enjoying the immediacy of digital, which is very different to print, where it's three months from the time you create content to the time that you might get a response to that content. This is an incredible rush, you know, <laughs> to be able to get instant feedback. And what fun to do it with a bunch of old colleagues who obviously have stayed connected all these years since Dolly began. It says a lot about friendship, doesn't it? And women's friendships, I think. It really does. And we were a very tight-knit group back then. You know, we were all in our 20s. For many of us, it was the first job or at least the first proper job. Those friendships were formed very early, very deep. We hung out together all the time. We were young single women just spending days and nights together. And even though life gets in the way and, you know, people go off and they partner and they, you know, some half of us got married and half of us didn't. And, you know, you don't stay in each other's lives in the same way. As soon as we got together again, it was like time hadn't, hadn't passed. It was so wonderful. But I agree with you, Sandra. I think that is the best of women's friendships. I think that is what, something that women have that is so special. And if you have that in your life, then you need to hang on to that. I agree. The market is screaming for conversations for older women. Marina Go, you're such a trailblazer across so many sectors. And I watch in awe at your career trajectory as you continue to um, break through the barriers and champion all female leaders. Thanks so much for spending some time with us here at Short Black. Thank you, Sandra. I really appreciate it. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 
To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.